Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast yet again. I have emerged from my default position, cowering under the sheets, to talk to you today about courage. Or at least to introduce Laura Sims, who gave a talk about courage at our weekly Dharma gathering a few weeks ago. You know, these are tough times, scary times. Sometimes we get overwhelmed. Sometimes you don't know what to do. Sometimes we're afraid to confront the world. How does a meditation practitioner cultivate and practice courage? Laura Sims is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. She is also an award-winning storyteller. She is the author of the book, Our Secret Territory, The Essence of Storytelling. Here is Laura Sims. So I was reading um, an article by an environmentalist about climate change. The subtitle of her article was that we should not have hope. We should have courage. And that so um, struck me that I was thinking to myself, so from a meditation point of view, what is courage? Because often our teachers have said that We have to give up our sort of obsession with hope and fear, with expectation. And so that was kind of the birth of this topic, looking at the nature of courage from our point of view as practitioners who are practicing um, a mindfulness awareness sitting practice at this time. So one of the first things that I did was look up the root etymology or the root meaning of the word courage. It was first used in the 12th or 13th century. And what it actually meant, sort of old French and Latin was um, courage or that of the heart. I always used to think it was the rage of the heart, but it is that of the heart, which maybe is the rage of the heart, the blazing open presence of noble heart as our source of inspiration. And I thought about what we conventionally think of as courage, as kind of um, just running out and um, taking risks and head-on facing things with great daring. And sometimes that is what we do as practitioners, but never without making sure we're connected to courage, that of the heart.
So I imagine that for all of us, these last weeks have been very demanding. Is it true? We ask ourselves, you know, what should we do? What, is, what, what can I do? What, what, where should I put my energy? How can I stop this train wreck? How can I make a difference? Where should I put myself? What, what is my action? Am I helpless, hopeless, useless? So this talk is about not doing nothing, but uncovering a place where whatever we do is the best of what we have to offer and causes the least harm to an already outrageous situation. So the question always is that brings us to the cushion is how do we live and who are we? And I think given the world as it is at the moment, that question is heightened. So courage, I think, is a natural quality of awakened compassion. Hi. And at the heart of all of our practice is the awakening of compassion and actually the study of what is compassion. And so what we're talking about is how do we live as compassionate human beings in a time like this, when what we have chosen is the unique and unconventional experience of discovering the nature of who we are as human beings and exploring and viscerally feeling and getting to know the fullness of our minds, not only our thoughts, which we're all very familiar with, but the vast resource of blazing, intelligent presence, space, unconditional, untarnished by all those thoughts and events of the world that exists. So from a Shambhala point of view, it's called basic goodness. Basic, fundamental, um, 
pri primal, unconditional. Goodness being neither good nor bad, but a resource of courage and presence. That's the space we come back to in that moment when suddenly we realize that we're thinking. What is that that realizes we're thinking? It's actually the not thinking awareness mind that for an instant we become aware of. And so we then are able to feel the whole territory of our mind in our practice. That alignment, that access, that capacity is the first immensely courageous act that we're taking as practitioners. Because to not know who we are and the fullness of our mind is then to think that who we are is what we're thinking all the time. Reconstructing, projecting, imagining, making up, reacting based on what we've learned that is often very different from what's actually happening. And we all know that somewhere, because we can be shocked if you are sure that such and such meant something or did something, and then you have a conversation with them. They say, well, I wasn't thinking of that at all. <laughs> you, like, chemically realign yourself. <laughs> oh, that was just my thought. That was just my habit. So this is the first act of courage, the important act of courage that we're willing to sit down and actually discover who we are as human beings. And how curious that that's not what we learned in school. And often not in our homes because it wasn't what was thought of as important. So there's a restoration of integrity and wholeness. And this courageous act brings me to your new favorite word of familiarity. Because the more that we practice, the more that we are able to distinguish between what we're thinking, and there's nothing wrong, usually, with our thinking, <laughs> And this quality, sort of beneath thought, or beyond thought, that is there and available all the time. So to be caught completely in the constant allure or grasping of the thinking mind is actually to close down to be limited, 
it is actually produces aggression, uptightness, a kind of fury to be right, a terror to be wrong. So it's absolutely imprisoned in bias and thought and opinion and interpretation. I just decided that I would talk straight. It closes us down. And we view the world as something we have to battle with. So simultaneously, we're battling with ourselves because then we have to keep that opinion constantly strong. We have to remove everything, destroy everything that doesn't agree with that, the crazier we get. I know none of us here ever have that. So there certainly are a lot of examples of it. So what happens when we make that courageous step of practicing, of noticing that we're thinking, and being willing for a second not to negate or get rid of or think that they're bad and we're good when we're not thinking and that was bad because the truth is if we're not able to think, there's not a lot of communication we would have with each other about certain things. But we're in this practice allowing ourselves to let go, literally let go of that grasping, even for an instant. And what that does, it makes us more familiar with basic goodness, more familiar with this self-existing resource that is always there. And because we've let go somewhat, <laughs> of our thinking and we begin to be a little suspicious that it's possible that it's just our opinion and it might not be everybody's opinion, that produces a tenderness or a gentleness, a, a sort of softening. It makes us available and vulnerable. We have this thing about the word vulnerable. It's like, get that word out of here. I am not vulnerable. As if to be vulnerable is to be weak, to be easily attacked and destroyed. I think that's not vulnerability. That's absence of presence. That's another thought that we're worthless and anything we think could be wrong. It's another festival of thought, a very painful one. But this vulnerability, this pliancy of mind, this is the second stage of courage from our point of view because this pliancy 
means that we can be aware of the fact that we have been caught up in whatever this thought is, whatever this opinion is, whatever this stuck, gigantic, whatever it is, is. And that it's not the whole show. And then letting go has a feeling of coming home. So it is an introduction to relating to what's not familiar at first, which is the nature of our mind. And in that space, that vibrating, full, empty space is the place of intelligence, compassion, insight, discernment, joy, because it's possible that we have a bigger view. Oh, there's my thing again. <laughs> there's my thing again, but also I can see it now. I'm not in it like someone captured in clay and hardened. I can be in it and out of it at the same time. And that's not only courageous, but that's the birth of what's called in the Buddhist tradition clear seeing. Because you begin to be able to experience what is actually happening without the filter of this kind of um, fabric of ideas that we use to say, well, this is definitely happening, or this is who I am, or... This is the way it is, man. Suddenly, it's a Swiss cheesy, more transparent fabric where we know our patterns. We're getting to know them. It's not like this anger or this complaint or this thing I see about myself, even though it feels new and I could say to my friend, I've never felt like this before. And then she or he shocks me by saying, are you kidding? You always say that. <laughs> Nobody here has had that experience. So we're beginning to actually be able to tolerate seeing what's actually happening and seeing that someone else might be seeing the situation completely differently than we are, without that being an attack. And I'm not talking about somebody coming at you with a knife or a gun and you say, you're thinking differently than I am. <laughs> you know, it's, it, we're not talking about being an idiot. We're talking about a process of waking up. So it is that when someone says something to us, we have stabilized our mind to such a degree 
that we're able to know that they are not making us angry. They are doing that, whatever they're doing, and that we do not have to be attacked by it. That doesn't mean we're stupid. Let's take the pieces, you know, we're pulling this apart, but that we are there. That's vulnerability, that's tenderness, that is being present, and there is tremendous courage in it because the deeper that we are practicing this sense of being present and pulling the threads out in situations, then we have access to insight, to intelligence, to action based on what's happening, rather than based on our own fear or projections. You following what I'm saying? And I think that this is so vital today because everything from the newspaper to people going crazy on the streets to everything that we're hearing is a, an invitation, an agitation, an allure, a, a kind of like, come on, get frightened, get furious, get confused, get upset, get distracted. Are you feeling that? And so therefore, what we are doing, what the courage is of this practice is, we're saying, wow, that's like a tsunami. And it is. But that place inside of you is not surrendered. And that's not an act of aggression or pride. That's naturally being there. It is the martial art of being present. It's the martial art of an alchemical courage. So we have a different option because of our practice. It's a different possibility. And one of the other ways to strengthen that is to pay attention in our ordinary everyday lives to absolutely ordinary details as if they're sacred. We brush our teeth. We put on our shoes. We eat. We buy milk. We talk to someone. And we do it. With a sense of attention to whatever it is we're doing. And that is tremendous courage. And it's not only tremendous courage, but it actually is compassion. Because we're sitting, we become the hero and heroine of our own story. Not like in a kind of disnified way, but in a very dignified way. 
So when you are talking to someone who's selling you the newspaper and you're really there, sometimes just by your being there for a second they are. And there is a moment of connection in that place. And I think we have to learn to really trust not only the basic goodness conceptually is real, but that that connection and that courage that we're having to be present in our lives has a very strong effect. It may not change things immediately, but it's like the story of the little mice who keep eating away at the bottom of a wall, and eventually that wall crumbles. So our sitting practice is a source of relaxation. It doesn't always feel like that. <laughs> and in fact, the irony of sitting in the beginning is that as you sit, it's actually more stressful because we were so aware, we were so involved in our thinking, we weren't even aware of the subterranean levels of multiplicity of thinking that we become aware of because we've slowed down and are focusing on this activity that we just kind of were swimming around in, like in a dirty swimming pool, without realizing that if we dip down further, there might be a fresh spring of water. Terrible image I came up with. <laughs> so. <laughs> so gentleness is what happens naturally when we settle our minds and we uncover inside of ourselves this sense of untarnishable, brilliant, basic goodness. So sometimes we stand up and we leave the shrine room after a talk or you've sat at home and you feel so good and you think, I got it. This is it. My life is completely changed. Everything's going to be fine. I can handle anything now. And then you walk outside and your neighbor has left a piece of chewing gum on the floor and you lose it completely. Or <laughs> you read the newspaper and... So this checking back, this accessing basic goodness is our protection. This softening rather than hardening is strengthening. Because when you know what's happening, you can respond. When you don't know what's happening, you react. And the more that we gain that strength, the more we know in a situation what we should do, what we can do, what we can't do, and what we won't do. So it is allowing us to use our natural intelligence as who we are in any situation. That's what we're working with. That's our journey. And it is simply personal for each person. 
So Jungba Rinpoche, in a book that I highly recommend, that I've begun to reread after many years, which is called The Heart of the Buddha, talking about that at any moment we can be swept up into our old patterns of behavior. But something has changed because we can recognize that that is the old pattern. And the part of us that recognizes it is not in the old pattern. Even if it's teeny-weeny. <laughs> that awareness is not part of the pattern, and that's there. None of us are hopeless. So Rinpoche said that this is a more open and passionate realization of our mind, which then is becoming sharp, profound, and even delightful regardless of circumstances. These are the glimpses of compassion, which begins with our being kind to ourselves. When we're kind to ourselves, we begin to know how to be kind to other people. It's not a theory or something we make up or something we should do. That's actually called idiot compassion. That leaves us vulnerable in the negative way of there's nobody home here. So we're taking a different road and the seeds that are opening inside of us is genuine courage. It's the courage to be present. It's the courage to feel enraged and instead of acting on that rage against someone or against ourselves, we actually remember that this rage is our precious treasure of energy. And we can actually feel that rage, even explore it, because we have a viewpoint from which to explore it. We don't have to be lost in the storyline about it. That's where we usually go. So then we have the energy, the insight, the clarity of that. It's ours. That energy is ours. We don't have to get rid of it, reject it, or stir it up further so that we couldn't burn down our own house. So that's the practice. And fear, that's fear is... I'm often, in the last few days, suddenly realizing that I am consumed with fear. And so I stop. And I feel my fear. And remember what Rinpoche said, that Fear, don't get rid of it, because in fear is tremendous intelligence. And also, it's if you stay in it, there's a lot of in, insight and tenderness. In fact, fear is fearlessness, unless we're striking out against it. Follow what I'm saying?
So we discover space through our practice. That is the self-existing ground from which thoughts arise and disappear. And it promotes a sense of warmth towards ourselves. What could be better? The most unselfish act to feel this warmth for ourselves, to appreciate. Because the truth is that it's not ours, it's self-existing. It is the nature. These simple steps begin to haunt us in our everyday lives. And then we can begin sometimes to see beyond the confusion that traps us. And the truth is we may not have conquered all of our fears or habits, but we're worthy of working on this. We're worthy of making mistakes. We're worthy of seeing who we are off the cushion. So part of the reason why one in this practice has eyes open is so that we're practicing so that when we're not on the cushion, we slowly become familiar of the existence of our own basic goodness all the time. The more space, the more breath, the more we can actually relax with who we are even in the midst of a lot of chaos. And we can see and taste and feel and touch. It's through our perceptions that we begin to get information about what's happening and know what our boundaries are and sometimes surprise ourselves with a sudden insight about what we could do that is totally out of the box. This strengthens our innate courage. We are navigators. We are explorers of the phenomenal world. The way Samoans knew how to feel the currents of the water beneath the boat. They didn't need maps because they could feel the currents and they could see the wind and they knew the stars so they could know how to navigate in very, very difficult waters and storms because they were sensitized to reality. So we're being kind to ourselves which is how we become kind to others. And being kind to others can take a lot of shapes. Sometimes that sharpness or fierceness is really necessary, like a parent that has to let their child know what they can do and they can't do. But it is not a reaction out of aggression or fear it is an intelligence that is subsumed with skill and love. And that produces in us 
one of the great aspects of genuine courage, which is dignity. So when we are experiencing a strong emotion, how could we not in these days, right? But we can have that strong emotion. And we can have the courage to have the strong emotion without drowning ourselves. And we will become very useful to many other people. So, in a certain way, it becomes simpler And we don't always know what to do. But then we know that we don't know what to do, so therefore something happens. Or that honesty is strength. If you pretend and suddenly do so, how many of us have done that where you flip over yourself or cause harm or something happens because we weren't really being there with not knowing what to do? So we vote, little advertisement. we listen, <laughs> we sleep, we eat, we relate to each other. There is no limit to the benefit of relating to each other. Sometimes this allows us unsuspectingly to disarm violence. We have teachers, some of them greatly realized. And if we find a teacher in trust who we can receive teachings from, then we really have to investigate who that teacher is. And when we find that teacher, then really take the instructions and don't confuse the teacher with the teachings and the fact that they will not solve our problems. This is our path. And there's not one single person here whose history isn't completely different and whose path isn't completely unique, even though we're doing the same practice. So we have to really learn that to have someone who can point the way is tremendously helpful because we forget. Sitting on the cushion for 37 years, I can walk out of here and in five minutes wait on line in Whole Foods or something and turn into a mini monster. <laughs> and then like, oh. <laughs> And I'm giving you a very vapid experience of my madness. All of our practice is based on uncovering and developing courage and compassion. So I hope this was helpful. And I 
have no idea what time it is, but I'm going to tell you a little story about something that happened recently. In, um, I was working with a group of children between the ages of 8 and 17. That in itself took courage. And it was in a community center way down the Lower East Side, and it was a four-part project. So I was telling one story, but section of it, like over four weeks. And then they would have art projects and all these things to do as we reinvented the world. But the first day I went around, I was just going to ask every kid for their name so I could hear their voices and also wouldn't become sort of me and them, but we're all in this soup. So the last boy that... I happened to just be a boy, that I asked his name. He was kind of looking down and schmoozing sh- sh- around in his seat. I said, well, what's your name? And he said, Poophead. I said, wow. I said, is that your real name? He said, yeah. And then all the other kids were saying, ah, that's not his real name. And I said, okay. I said, listen. I said, I'm going to feel really uncomfortable calling you Poophead, so could I call you P.H.? And he kind of said, okay. So anyway, it all began, and the first three sessions, there were a lot of kids that were distracted and kind of wild and wiry, and he was always distracted. But also there was something about his incredible intelligence and how he was paying attention. And sometimes I'd ask a question, and I thought that he wasn't listening at all. I mean, he was just, who knows what he was doing all over the room. And he would just answer. Something absolutely brilliant and sharp. So I sort of really liked Poophead. But it was really hard to do anything because he was always a master at figuring out how he could disturb other people and annoy me, which got some respect from me, but also, like, give me a break. Anyway, fourth time, we were working on this story where Sky Woman had given instructions to two brothers, and one brother was called Good Mind, and the other brother was Bad Mind. And all Good Mind was doing was going around and creating everything in the world that was really abundant and good, and Bad Mind was attaching thorns and bad thoughts and making monsters and trying to destroy everything. So the instruction was that, actually, that Sky Woman made a certain cave for him to keep all the monsters in. Don't you feel like the monsters have crawled out lately? Anyway, so... um, (laughs) We were making drawing monsters and this and that, and P.H. had drawn a monster. And while I was telling the rest of the story, in the corner of my eye, I had brought these markers, and they're like Legos. You could attach them. And he had attached them like two long swords. And suddenly he was spinning them around. And as he was getting control over these weapons of magic markers, he sort of 
stood up. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to poke someone in the eye or something's going to happen because it was so intense. And then he started moving across. He was so proud of these, moving across the room with his weapons like swords. And I said, P.H., I said, did one of those monsters get inside of you? And he said, yes. And I said, maybe you could show us how a monster dances. And everybody cleared off to the sides of the room, I think completely relieved in a second that they were not going to be harmed. And then he leapt up, and he did this unbelievable dance with these weapons. I said, that's amazing. The monster is dancing. And he was in a rhythm, and he was just with his weapons, doing them. And then I said, P.H., let's see if what Sky Woman said is true. Where is your monster's heart hidden? And all the time he's continuing, he said, in my ear. I said, okay, then we are going to talk to the heart of the monster. And I can't say his name, but I'll say his name was Sam. And I said, to everybody, let's speak to Sam through the heart in his ear of the monster. And none of this was planned. I said, Sam, I love you. And everybody in together was saying, Sam, I love you. And he was then dancing to Sam, I love you. And he was really enjoying it. But the more that we said, Sam, I love you. Sam, I love you. Sam, I love you. Sam, I love you. The dance began to slow down. And suddenly he was like a cloud dancer, like a Tai Chi master. And all of the Lego magic markers just sort of fell to the ground, and they were like pieces of the sky just scattered in the room, and he just slowly, he just sank down. And I said, what did the monster turn into? And he said, I don't know. I said, would you give me permission to ask if any of the other kids in the room have any ideas? He said, yeah. And a girl said, I know the monster turned into a boy. Well, this was my last day in the project. It wasn't like I was going to be there after this. And I had promised them all that I would tell them a ghost story that would scare their socks off. So the woman in charge was like tapping her arm for her make-believe watch. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I said, so I'll tell a ghost story. And then I told this five-minute terrifying ghost story about a hyena. And really, there's nothing much to the story except my voice made <laughs> them jump. And uh, so, <laughs> P.H., Sam. I realized for the, he was just with us all. 
He was just with us all. That's my story. So um, please, if you have any, I hope that I did this topic justice and that I gave you some nurturance and, and help for these times because these seem to be difficult times, unimaginable, and they're here. So let's not lose our hearts, whoever we are. So any questions or thoughts or? I think I have a little example of what kindness and compassion you were just talking about. For the second day, I went to this new cleaners around the corner from where I live. And I picked up my cleaning. And I said to the owner, I, I have to tell you, there is nobody on the block who has their address listed outside. And since this is only my second time here, I was looking for your address and you have your address outside of your door. And I must compliment you because it's so much easier for me, and I thank you. And he was very appreciative of my compliment. The next day, I was walking on the street. I passed his window. He was in the window doing some sewing. I look at him. He looks at me. I start to wave. He starts to wave. He's very, 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 very happy. I made him happy. He made me happy by smiling at me. And we had this tiny, 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 Happiness together. Yeah, good. Yeah. Aerating, aerating the world. <laughs> yes. I'd like to also share a similar story. Um, I have a new position at a job I just started, and it's uh, quite stressful. And months ago, I was riding my bike home from work, and there's this gentleman, Polish gentleman, that sits on his, his stoop every day, at the same time every day. And a couple of months ago, I just got this knee-jerk reaction to give him a peace sign. And every time I give him the peace sign, he always waves and smiles at me. <laughs> and it's in that very instance, that one moment, that any stress I had previous to that moment just sheds right away. And I do it every single day. I did it today. <laughs> And just the second he was coming out his door, I was passing him, just gave him a peace sign. So, yeah, just those kind of micro moments, especially in a city like ours, kind of helps. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> also, listening to each other like we're doing, listening to each other without bias, without judgment, just listening is another act of courage that also aerates the thickness of what's taking place. What we read about you before and, and what you've just helped us with and that the, the use, there's no limit to the benefits of relating to each other, wonderful. But the usefulness of storytelling, storytelling as a, as a, a healing, nurturing, relating, moving us all forward, you know, thing. So your teaching obviously, you know, illustrated that. And you were wonderful that you said it was a soup. Let's all just do this together because we're in it together and, the, and it's a simple thing. It's not about me, you. 
that we all. So. It reminds me, I, um, I was at the Met on Saturday seeing a friend of mine who was telling stories in the African collection. And she recited this quote by a great African writer named Chinua Achebe. If you haven't read his work, I suggest it. And he said that, um, that story is really important, that it is our escort in life. And I really associate the storytelling, which is a kind of engagement with my practice a lot, and um, said, if we don't really engage our children with story and with heart, that they will be like blind people who fall randomly into thorny brush. It's very powerful. I mean, he said it more beautifully than I'm saying it. But yes, yes. Well, Hi. No, I'm not. I'm Oops. so sure what I wanted to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that. <laughs> I just kind of feel. I just was feeling discouraged with having strong emotions and trying to uh, let you know breath come into them, the opening, so that it, they're kind of not everything. There's there's more space around them. But then I remembered you said uh, you know even if you the fact that you can that I could even see that yes that, you know it's just the look you know <laughs> I want it to to move, you know, and yeah. the movement's tiny, I guess. Well, you know, what stands between it moving and not moving is usually the want. And, um, but Pema Children has a wonderful practice for strong emotions. And I have given that practice in this seat before, but it's worthwhile, and I use it myself. That when you really realize that you are encapsulated or imprisoned in very strong emotions that you just stop for a moment, if you can, and push the storyline to the side. Doesn't mean that you're not feeling, but you push the storyline which propels and actually keeps instigating like logs on a fire. You just push it to the side and feel the emotion and breathe into it three times. And then breathe out. So what you're doing is interrupting the intensity. So it's extremely helpful. So such strong emotions if you can pull a few of the trap doors out, <laughs> let a little air in, then you can go forward. If you fight with it, sometimes it gets stronger. Or like a monster in a fairy tale, it'll grow another head. Or you let it go and you, know, you cut off the head and from the blood of that monster will be born a thousand other monsters. 
So we have to somewhat fall in love with our neuroses, or at least appreciate it. I mean, not fall in love with it that we want to like build an entire life out of it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but um, do you follow what I'm saying? Wonderful. Great question, I think, because we all need that. Um, I was wondering if you could just, <clears throat> um, I'm having a kind of an inner dialectic with um, the term uh, basic goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, goodness is kind of a loaded word in the English language. Yeah. And the opposite of goodness, of course, is bad. And, and of course, if you, you consider Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, um, that, that age-old battle. Um, I was just wondering if you have another image for us uh, uh, that's maybe... Abiding peace, unconditional mind, noble heart, space, <laughs> openness. Um, I think Jungbu Rinpoche was a master at taking words that um, we have a lot of attachment to and projection and opening them up. So it's not goodness, but it's basic goodness. It's like the basic possibility. Goodness in a very fundamental way of like the soil or the you know, mulch that has roots and nutrients in it. That it's not... Um, good and bad, those are things that don't exist in a way there. Like it, what's good and bad for you and I could be very different in another culture, another time. So I want to thank you. I want to dedicate the merit of the goodness of our listening and being together to all those who are suffering in the world today. Thank you, Laura Sims. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast, for telling your friends about the podcast. Email us at podcast at chimbalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Okay. Later. Later.